We, um, uh, we moved from Sydney, and while we lived there, um, Mary, within Mary's family, we had a holiday house just, well, not we personally, the, within the family, uh, just an hour up the coast, uh, and the place was like 50 metres off the beach. So that's, when we holidayed, that's where we always went. And then we moved to Wodonga, and in case you haven't noticed, there's no beaches around here. <laughs> Uh, and despite what t- people tell me, would tell us at the time about the weir, um, it's just not the same. And so we had to figure out how to holiday as a family differently. And so, and so we've done that, which has been awesome. We've gone on different trips to different places and whatever. But, but those things aren't you know, just the kind of everyday common kind of ducking away for a weekend holiday. So we decided that we needed to get into, into camping. Uh, we borrowed a, a tent from my sister. But... Beyond that, that was like all we had. We had the tent. And so we decided, as we were venturing into this new territory of of becoming campers, that we needed to go with people who had already done it and who knew uh, what they were doing. And so thankfully, we were having this conversation with our friends, the Malpasses, and they were on board. Well, I think what happened, the way that I recall it, Ash was on board. (laughs) Sam was willing, if there was someone else, uh, to come along. And, and so we started what has become an almost annual tradition of going camping once a year. Uh, the Thorpes and the Malpasses, uh, we head off. And, and we're coming up to our, our annual trip soon. And aren't we all just babies right there? Um, Sahara, our eldest, just, oh, and Eliza is, uh, has graduated um, high school now, so yeah, t- things have changed since then. Um, but we always typically go in November. Both Ash and I have birthdays in November, so for those who missed mine, it's okay, we can still be friends. Um, <laughs> Both Ash and I have birthdays in November, so at different times, you know, because we fluctuate where we go in November. We've, we've celebrated birthdays while we've been camping. Uh, there's been decorations, a cake, and all that kind of stuff. Um, really, we're just getting in practice for joining the castaways uh, when we <laughs> come into our retirement. Um, but I think we'll have to upgrade it from our tent by that point. Um, but it's one of those things on the family calendar that we look forward to each year. But one of the defining experiences of Camping, I think you'd agree, would be the campfire. Like, there's no point camping in summer because you can't have a fire. Like, and so it's, it's that balance between, well, you don't want it to be too cold because, like, you don't want to freeze overnight, but, but you want it cold enough that you can have a fire. And so when the, when the temperature begins to drop in the afternoon, you know, you start to, to light the fire, and we sit around and we talk together and we do so well into the night, plus then, you know, the obligatory uh, marshmallow roasting that goes on as well. But there's absolutely something about fires, isn't there? Like, I, I don't think I've met a kid who doesn't want to throw something into the fire. It doesn't matter whether they're, they're 2 or 12 or 18, it's like, Dad, can I, can I chuck this in the fire? Dad, can I? Um, you know, there's, there's, all kids want to do that. They want to throw in their rubbish, they want to watch it burn. But it's not just kids. Is it? Because when it's cold, we, we all want to gather around as close as we can and to, to get the warmth of it. But there's also that, that moment when there's the, the lull in the conversation and you just get captivated just watching the dance of uh, the flames and, and you just kind of absolutely vague out because you're mesmerized by, by what's going on there. And then, you know, there's, there's when you wander off from the campsite to go to the bathroom and, and in the dark, you, you think you 
you look for to, to find your, your way back is, is the campfire. It becomes the, the beacon to guide you and to draw you back to your temporary home. Well, I'm thinking about all of this uh, as we consider today the potential of the church because one of the things that Jesus says to his disciples who, who formed the nucleus of his church, one of the things he says to them is, you are the light of the world. This comes very early on in the Sermon, uh, sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and it comes right at the start of Jesus' ministry. From the outset then, he's telling them what, what, he's telling what will become his church, what and how he expects it to be. And so he says to them, you are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He's saying that the church is to be a gathering of, of campfires and lanterns and lamps that collectively shine their light out into the world. I mean, have you ever been driving at, at night and approaching a, a city or a town, and as you do so, you just see the, kind of, the glow of it on the, on the horizon? That's, that's the call for us here, for our light to radiate outwards into the dark and to then draw others in towards it. Paul changes the analogy, but he says something similar to the church in Philippi. He says, do everything without grumbling and complaining, grumbling and arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. See, one of the other defining camping experiences is, I reckon, the night sky. I mean, coming from the suburbs of Sydney, uh, the stars, I mean, they were nice and pretty and all, but so many less than what we see in having come to Wodonga. And then when we head to Mount Beauty or Clack Clack or, or wherever else that we go, it seems like the sky is that just that much fuller again of this, you know, the twinkling beauty of, of the stars. It, it never ceases to astonish. And so Paul is communicating this clear instruction and expectation that the church will shine its light, the light of Jesus, out into the dark world that surrounds it. We're to be the light of the world, a light that shines out all the brighter in the darkness that, that is around us. And all this is significant because Israel had been called to be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah writes to them, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So Israel, who God had chosen from among the nations to be his own people in covenant relationship with him, they were meant to be a light to the Gentiles. They were meant to shine out their light beyond themselves to the nations around them. And as they did so, to open blind eyes, release from bondage, bring light into that darkness. And then a few chapters later in Isaiah, he also writes then to, to Israel that it was not enough for them to just be God's people, as significant as that was. Their, their purpose was to be a light for others. God says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you 
a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In other words, they were not God's people just for their own sake and benefit. They were to be a light, a city on a hill. They were meant to be stars in the sky that God's salvation could spread out from them to all peoples. Their light was to radiate outwards and to draw others in. But unfortunately, on the whole, they kept their light to themselves. They did take their lamp and stick it under a bowl. And so the potential was there, but it was, it was unrealized. And so Jesus extends the call and the mission of Israel, and he brings it into his church that, they would, that we would be the light of the world, that his salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You may have heard me say a couple of times in how I've been describing light, I've said that it, that it radiates outwards and it draws inwards. And I think these are two movements that Jesus calls us as his church uh, to, to be engaged in as we are a city on a hill, stars in the sky, as he calls us to be. And so let's look at these two movements. We'll look first at how light radiates outwards. In Matthew 28, we read Jesus speaking, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says to his disciples then, Therefore go and make other disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now these are probably very familiar words to many of us called the, the Great Commission. This is Jesus' instruction to these first Christians and through them to us today for us to intentionally go and make other disciples, for us to shine his light out into the world. Luke records another version of, of this commissioning, if you like, in the opening chapter of Acts. He says there that you, again, it's Jesus speaking, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. So here we have explicitly the, the idea that the light of the gospel radiates outwards as it starts in Jerusalem where they already are and then moves further and further out into increasingly large you know, kind of geographic regions from Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And so with these two commissions from Jesus, we would expect that we would see the church moving outwards, wouldn't we? But as we, as we then read the book of Acts, you know, which is the story of you know, the, the birth of the church, the church in its early days, at least initially, they seem pretty content to actually just stay in Jerusalem where they are. There's a sense, again, of, of keeping this light that they have, of keeping it just with the Jews, their, their fellow Jews. But eventually, the level of persecution against the new church becomes so much that they're forced out of Jerusalem. And then as they are finally going, they share the gospel. And they do so first in Judea and then in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so then you end up with Paul reporting to the Colossian church that the, the gospel is growing and bearing fruit throughout the whole world. And so this going, this, this radiating outwards is at the heart of what it means to be the people of Jesus in the church. After his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples as they hide themselves away in a locked room. And he says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. 
And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Light radiates outwards. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Likewise, the church is called to go out, to be scattered throughout the community and scattered throughout the world, taking the light of Jesus and the light of the gospel with us wherever we go. And just as Jesus was sent into the world to bring his salvation, so too we are sent into the world with the light of his salvation. And we usually think of these verses that we've looked at as, as individuals, you know, the, the call to, to go and make disciples. Yeah, okay, that's, that's on me. I need to go and, and do this. And, and as individuals, we definitely have responsibility to be the light of the world. But they have all been said to and about, not individuals, but a group, to a gathering of followers of Jesus, what today we call the church. In other words, we together are the light of the world. Together, our light should shine out all the brighter. We should stand out, having a noticeable impact on those around us. And as we do, as our light shines outwards, it will actually serve to draw others in, to draw near to the light. Light invites others to come close, to, to draw near, you know, just like the campfire. The way we, the church, live should shine out in a way that actually attracts others to come. And we see this lived out throughout the book of Acts. There's the classic description of the early church that comes at the end of chapter 2 in Acts. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. These Christians were leading a, a, and living a distinctive life together. In their, in their community, Jesus was taught. Meaningful fellowship with one another was experienced. The Spirit of God was actively and visibly at work. They experienced unity in the midst of all their differences. They, they cared for the poor amongst them. They met regularly together, both as, as a large group in the temple and also in smaller gatherings in homes. They, they in effect, lived such good lives among the pagans that though accused of doing wrong, they could see their good deeds and glorify God. And what was the result then of this early church living in such a way? What was the result of this city on a hill, stars in the sky, light radiating outwards kind of living? It says that the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. It drew others in. And this is the pattern we see. In Acts chapter 5, as the Spirit moves among them and the church gathers regularly, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. They, they were drawn in. And the result of this is that the people sought out the Christians to seek healing and relief from their difficulties. In chapter 6, they address this issue of the appropriate care of, of both the, the Hebrew and the Greek widows among them. And they appointed you know, deacons, if you like, to help serve 
uh, these people. And the result of that is that the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Their light radiated outward in such a way that it drew others in. If the Great Commission is at the heart of the church's light radiating outwards, then the Great Commandment is at the centre of our drawing others in. When Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law, he replied to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and it's the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What people see yeah, in, in the account of Acts, what people see is the church loving their neighbour, loving them, both those who are in the church and those who are out of it. And so Jesus says to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This love becomes evident in the life of the early church. The, the church father, Tertullian, reports that the Romans say to one another about the church, see how they love one another. Uh, over the last month, I've been reading this book called The Patient Ferments of the Early Church. And it talks about factors that both pushed people away from their pagan faith, but also kind of pulled them in towards Christianity and towards the church. And it's the love and the care of the church for those in their ranks, um, such as what we've seen in the descriptions of Acts, that, you know, that there was no needy amongst them uh, because they practically and financially provided for each other. It's this that was a great pull for people to explore Christianity. But the love is not limited to just those within their, within their own ranks. Recognising the, the reality of this push-pull dynamic, uh, the Roman emperor Julian the Apostate in the 300s, he wrote to pagan priests saying to them, it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and these impious Galileans support not only their own poor but ours as well, all men see our people lack aid from us. He's telling them, you know what, guys? It's no wonder that you're losing followers. It's no longer that the pagan temples are declining in attendance and participation because you do nothing to help the people. And yet these Galileans, you know, which is the, the Christians, these Christians care not only for themselves, but they care for the society in general. The light radiates outwards looks beyond itself to others. And as it does so, it then attracts others in and draws them in towards the light. And so as the church, we are called to be the light of the world. And this, this is an identity statement. This is something that we are rather than something we do. This is not Jesus saying, you need to do a whole lot of stuff and then you'll be my light in the world. Now he says, you are. This is who you are. But because it's who we are, there are things that we'll naturally do as an expression of that. We'll radiate outwards and draw inwards. We will go out into the world and we will love in such a way to draw others in. 
And so I think the, the invitation and the encouragement to us this morning is may we be who Jesus calls us to be. Let's pray together, church. Jesus, you've called us to be your church, to be your people, and to take you know, the words that, that you spoke to, to Israel as too small a thing for us to just exist for our own sake and to just have our light to ourselves you know, as your people. That's too small a thing. You call us to a bigger life, to a, to a bigger purpose and, and mission to be your light to the Gentiles, that your salvation might come into all who need it. And so, Jesus, you call us the light of the world. And I pray then that we might be the, the city on a hill that you call us to be. I pray that in our life together that we might shine like the stars in the sky, that we would stand out in the midst of the world around us, a world that that we can see in different ways and aspects is, is darker and further and further away from you. But may our life in you and with you then just shine out all the brighter we ask. May we not have our lamp hidden under a bowl, but may we live in our life as individuals, but especially in our life together. May we live in a way that your light shines outwards and it radiates and stretches out and touches and impacts on others. That we could see um, you know, in different gatherings of your people, whether it's in a small group, whether it's in the cafe, whether it's, it's here on a Sunday, whatever it is, that, that there's, um, there's an impact that's going out from these places. And that as then your light shines out, as our distinctive way of living following you shines out, that it just serves to draw others in. May we love well, love you, love each other, and love those around us in a way that, that shows your love, that would draw others in to know you and to grow your church. I pray, Jesus, that we would be the light of the world that you call us to be. I pray this in your name. Amen.